Thank you all so much for, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about uh, what happened in Nashville, I just can't in this room without losing it, um, but I really appreciate the way that you have prayed, um, it, it's, it's deeply affected our community, um, we have people in our church who were in the building, people who lost their lives that I know, and uh, so uh, thank you. Um, I, when Grant asked me if I would speak today, uh, that event had not happened, and I felt like there was um, a subject that I should talk about here, uh, and uh, I haven't felt that change, and so I'm going to go with that. Uh, and I have an agenda, uh, and the agenda for this is that my hope is that, is that by the end of this, <laughs> that by the end of this, the Lord would use this time together, this message, uh, to stir in us a hunger to be in Scripture. And so I'm going to read a passage from 2 Timothy and then mess with you a little bit. 2 Timothy 3, um, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When I was in college, I spent uh, the first semester of my senior year as a student abroad living in Jerusalem, which was amazing. If you get a chance to do that, do it. Um, and while I was there, the class, the way that the school worked, because we did a lot of field trips, there were, there were no classes on Fridays, and so there were always three-day weekends unless we were taking field trips. And there was a group of about six of us students um, who found each other and hung out together uh, a lot, four guys, uh, two women, and, and we would travel around on these weekends together and just pick a place on a map not knowing where it was and just going because, you know, we were unencumbered with the cares of this world because we were 20. And, uh, and so we went and we traveled and uh, we picked this, we'd just get a map and we'd just kind of randomly pick a spot and we picked this Persian port city called Dor uh, and we got in a taxi and the, and, the, and the taxi driver looked at us kind of confused like that's where you want to go and we said yes. It was written in Old English on the map and we thought that's cool. We didn't realize that Old English on the map meant it wasn't a city, it was a ruin so there was nothing there. Um, but he got us there anyway, he dumped us off and it was this coastal point between Haifa and Tel Aviv, and we set up camp, we brought food with us, and we set up camp, and we just slept out under the stars on the Mediterranean Sea, little crabs crawling over us in our sleeping bags, and in the morning, I got up, and I went for a run, and I'm running down the beach, and as I'm running, something catches the, a glint in the corner of my eye uh, that's kind of right there where the water is lapping up onto the shore, onto the sand, and there's an object, and I stop, and I look at it, and I eat and I'm going to show you, I brought with you what I found, and you're not going to believe it. I found this. This, like a message in a bottle. Can you believe it? It's right here. That's what I found. And I couldn't believe it. I, I just couldn't believe that I would find something. We, we, our, my friends and I, we talked about this had to have come from the Mediterranean Sea. It, it probably came from some ship out there. And we just talked about, like, what could it say? We didn't have a bottle opener with us, and so we couldn't open it. And so we just wondered, like, is this the last-ditch effort for hope from some ship that's sinking and now is laying at the bottom of the sea? And there's some captain on a, on a deserted island, and this is, his, this is his 
cry for help? Is this, is this some, some, uh, some Romeo, and Romeo and Juliet Shakespearean tragic love covenant uh, that some couple uh, put in a bottle and sent out for somebody else to find? Is it, is it, is it the bored scratchings of, of children on a cruise ship trying to kill another dinner on their parents' anniversary cruise? What is it? Who knows, right? And so we passed it around and we imagined and we wondered and we talked about it. And then we got back to school, and I was, I was like, okay, I'll open it when I get back to school because I can find a bottle opener there. But I tried to, and the cork started to disintegrate, and I really didn't want to ruin my prize, and so I just didn't open it until I got back home three months later at, in the States. And it just sat there. And I think that this, what I've just described to you, is, is many people's relationship with the Bible. And that is that we have Bibles, many of them, but we don't necessarily open them, and we don't necessarily engage with what's written inside them, and we have reasons for this, but we are not, as Paul described here in this, in this passage, acquainted with sacred writings. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now, and I see that we are in a biblically illiterate generation, and I don't mean that as an insult. I actually mean it quite literally. I mean that people, a great many people who claim to embrace Christianity as their faith have not read the book upon which that faith is based. We own the book that Paul told Timothy is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, training and righteousness. We even form opinions about it, but we don't necessarily know what it says. And my question to all of us is, does that make any sense at all? So I want to make a case for why we should open the bottle and read the message and not just leave it on the shelf. And I want to talk about it by way of talking about the authoritative voice that you yield to. What is the authoritative voice in your life that you yield to? There's an old theological name for embracing Scripture as your authoritative voice, and it's sola scriptura, one of the five solas of the Reformation. What does it mean to live by Scripture alone? It means that we view God's Word, that we use the Bible, we view the Bible, the Old Testament, which Jesus said He did not come to abolish but to fulfill, and then the story of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus as preserved and taught by His apostles through the New Testament as our authoritative rule for life and for faith. In other words, we embrace the authority of the Bible above all other authoritative voices. Now, some might say, uh, listen, you lost me at authoritative voices because I don't, nobody tells me what to do. <laughs> In saying that, understand that you're revealing that you do live under an authoritative voice. It's just yours. It's your voice. And the question is not whether you or I obey an authoritative voice. We all follow them. All of us have them. The question is, is the authoritative voice that you yield your life to worthy of your devotion? Have you ever considered what that voice is and evaluated what qualifies it to hold such an important role in this one life that you've been given? Because if the main authority that we yield to is just our own, then we're following a voice. Track with me on this. If you're just listening to your own voice, then you're following a voice whose wisdom and insight into this life is no greater than what you already know. And as for me, that's not going to go well because I'm too big of a fool for that. Historically, Christians have been people of the book. And as a pastor, I don't see a lot of evidence that we're in the golden age of a love for the Bible. 
but we have it. We have this collection of writings that's been preserved through the ages, living words, which have, what have they done? They've transformed people's lives. They've transformed countless people's lives. They've spurred them on toward love and good deeds. This, this message in a bottle has washed up on our shores, and many of us just yawn with indifference and leave it closed. Why should we read it and yield to it as our authoritative voice? We should because of how Scripture presents itself, as seen in the text that we just read, that it is God's complete all-sufficient, inspired, reliable, authoritative, normative revelation of Himself to we who are made in His image. It is a reliable guide and map. The Bible is the story of God's love for us. I was sitting in that seat over there by Grant as you guys were singing, and I was looking at this window right here. Nobody in this building, in this campus, has ever said a word to me about this window, but I can read it because it's the story of Scripture. And I want to just draw your attention to a couple things and issue you a challenge. The challenge is this. As you're a student here at Covenant, learn to read this window because it starts at Genesis and it ends in Revelation. And I'm going to give you a little starter kit for it. I'm, listen, I know many of you have spent a lot of time in the Bible. You read the Bible here. You care about it. People probably talk about this window here. So I know that there's a lot here that's familiar. But down here... We've got Adam and Eve before the fall. And then up in that corner of this first lower panel, you've got Adam and Eve after the fall and they're dressed. They're dressed because they've sinned and they've become aware of their nakedness and their shame and they've covered themselves because God made garments for them to cover their shame. And next to them is the angel with the flaming sword who's casting them out of Eden. And as you read up, the rest of it is the story of how that gets repaired. And you've got Christ born and you've got Christ crucified, and you've got Christ risen, and you've got Christ on the throne of glory forever, interceding for us, because we live in a world that's hard to live in. And this is the testimony of Scripture to us. It's a story. We learn in these pages how people have tried and failed to live up to impossible standards. It's the story of strivers and manipulators and controllers and murderers. It's the story of shortcutters like us, and a God like no other. And these pages tell of people who make destructive choices with their lives, and they burn their worlds to the ground, and Jesus dignifies them by touching them and letting them touch Him. It's a place where you have in these pages people rising from the ruins, prodigals come home, and the Father runs out to meet them and wraps His arm around them. Sinners are protected from condemning insults from the self-righteous. The poor are fed and clothed. Downcast chins are lifted to see the kindness of their Savior. The Bible is not a magic book, but you know what it is? It's a living book. It's a living book. And if we're to understand it as it presents itself, then we see that in it, it's not simply the story of characters contained within the covers of the book. It's, it's our story. To read this window from Genesis to Revelation is to read your story. It's the story of your hope. It's the story of what we do with grief and tragedy. It's unflinching. It's a message in a bottle. 
And it's, a, it's an adventure story. It's, it's, it's a grander adventure than any child's ima- imagination. And you, my friends, are in the fellowship of that adventure. It is the story about a lover who will pursue his beloved across the cosmos and down through time. And you are the beloved. You are the object of the lover's affection. It's a desperate plea for rescue from a great catastrophe, a world that is on fire. And you are the one being saved. The message in the bottle is written for you. Will you read it? The moment that we're in when I, when I wrote this, what had happened had not yet happened. I'm going to use the word gun. I'm letting you know. I'm aware that I'm using the word gun in a benign way, but I'm still using the word. It's triggering me a little bit. It may trigger you, so I'm telling you this, this, this is happening here. Um, there's a writing trope called Chekhov's gun that's used in novel writing and screenwriting and playwriting. And what it means is is basically that if the author tells the reader or if an actor places a gun on a table, if there's a gun lying on a table in the first chapter, then by the third chapter the gun has to be used. It's a rule in screenwriting, right? The idea is that useful items that are included have to be put to use. Don't put it in if it doesn't have a purpose in the story, right? And so useful items have to be put to use. If nobody is going to use use that item, don't put it in the scene. And what happens with this, this rule, what, basically what this rule is trying to say is that in screenwriting and in novel writing that the, that the writer and the reader enter into a kind of a social contract together where there are expectations that would happen, right? That, that would stipulate that the things that you're being told, you're being told because they matter, because there's significance to your understanding of the story that's being played out. So when Paul talks about Scripture, when Paul lays the Bible on the table, he says, this book, it can make you wise concerning salvation through faith in Jesus. It can tell you everything you need to know about how to be redeemed. He tells you that it is God-breathed, that God authored this through people but he authored it and he's preserved it. And that in it, it's just profitable. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. That believers might be equipped for every good work. And when he says all this, he is laying something supremely useful on the table And then he's telling us, you're a character in the story. So this book is a reliable guide for life and for faith. It's worthy of your affection and your devotion. It is an infallible map. It will not lead you astray. And so it can't just lie on the table. Because what sense would that make? It's like the unspoken agreement that we entered into when I pulled this bottle out of my backpack. 
We have a deal, don't we, right now? You know what the deal is. The deal is when I showed you this, you want to know what it says. You've been wondering this whole time what it says. Wondering if I'm going to open it. I don't need to open it. You know why? Because I have it memorized. I opened it once, tied it back up, put it back in, put the cork back in. My prize is intact, but I have memorized. I know what it says. And there is absolutely nothing stopping me from telling you what this message is. And you want to know because you're invested and you're nervous. It matters to you, right? Because somehow in the course of the last 18 minutes, I've said words to you and somehow what I've said has become part of your story and now you're invested because you need to know because this is your bottle too, right? There's absolutely nothing stopping me from telling you what this message says. And so I ask you, what possible sense would it make if after all this, I just didn't? Pray with me. <laughs> Father, I am not kidding. <laughs> Lord, I ask that you would trouble us with the lack of information and that we would sit with the lack of information as a reminder to be curious about what your word says. This message in a bottle that you've given us that tells us that we were made to live in peaceful union with you, but we have sinned and been cast out of Eden and there are flaming swords guarding the entrance. And if we're going to be reconciled to you, you're going to be the one who's going to do it. For this window that takes us from the first page of scripture to the last, from the book that takes us from the creation of all things to the restoration of all things. Lord, give us a hunger to know it. Reveal yourself to us. Make yourself known. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.